Welcome, everyone, to episode 203 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're reviewing what might be our first mockumentary in over 200 episodes of the podcast. That is the Sundance 2022 flick, Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. Before we get to that, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, happy Labor Day. How's your long weekend been? I guess it depends on whether you consider Borat a subsequent movie film to be a mockumentary it is that's a great question ways. is is yeah. yeah is it a mockumentary i so I, that it's that, like a travel log only... it's like a fake travel log yeah I don't know. that'd be the only other one i could think of but uh yeah yeah no i'm good question. i'm good i'm good scott we're recording this on monday afternoon it's always nice to you know have a have a day off work i was in winston-salem over the weekend doing uh some mock trial stuff and getting the season started so um you know always have have fun with that and uh, just uh, relaxing today on the day off. And uh, on Saturday, I think I mentioned this before, but I'm headed to Pittsburgh uh, to see the Tennessee Pittsburgh game. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Generally Tennessee games don't go super well when there's any sort of stakes whatsoever to the game. But um, (laughs) I don't know that they looked good in their first game, but didn't have a tough opponent. Yeah. So, so it goes with, with first weeks often of, of the season. Kentucky is playing an SEC game in week two of the season against Florida. Very strange to be playing a conference game in the second week of the season, but. Well, Clemson and Georgia Tech play tonight, and that's a conference game in week one. So, yeah, yeah, I feel like they've been doing that a lot more recently, but. uh, Especially as the conferences are getting, well, the main conferences are getting bigger. Yeah, SEC has gotten bigger in the past. It's probably going to get bigger again, you know, in the next five years. Big Ten is getting bigger with UCLA and USC. So eventually the whole season is just going to be conference. Pretty much. Yeah. That's, that's kind of uh, what to expect. And yeah, I mean, Alabama and Texas play next week and that's, that will be an SEC game here in a couple of years. So, but you know, that's football corner, I guess. Let's see what else other sports going on. I mean, there's the U S open right now. I don't know if you've been watching the U S open. I have. Yeah. I saw Nick Curios have yet another meltdown and then, uh, of course, Serena. Curious what in I the call- quarterfinal. He beat Medvedev last night. I don't know. Yeah, I know, but yeah. he, he was you know acting a fool as he usually does. But um, Serena, of course, uh, what I called the the greatest six one set loss ever, where she she battled off like six match points or something before finally succumbing. Um, but it was she had she a nice run it, there. I mean, kind of, yeah. I mean, she was serving for the first set. Yeah. And also was up like 5-1 in the second. I know she still won the second set, but... Yeah, she didn't have any stamina left, I don't think, but still was was fighting there at the end. I just hope to have, I don't know, as uh, as much stamina as she does when I'm 40 years old or whatever. Yeah, yeah definitely. 41 or whatever she is now. And then in baseball, just to wrap up Sports Corner, <laughs> uh, the the Mets take two off the Dodgers and proceed to lose two to the Nationals. So, you the know, Nationals, no, yeah. normal stuff, normal stuff happening in the MLB, so... The Guardians are falling apart, but uh, yeah, I'd rather not dwell on that. That's a roller coaster ride, as always. But anyway, that's it for for the podcast this week. I think we can wrap things up. <laughs> we'll be okay. Anyway, we'll no, be getting good. picked up by Barstool here in a couple of weeks. Yeah, just to I mean, yeah. We'll send some clips in, and I'm sure they'll pick us up yeah. immediately. Yeah, but no, the real topic of conversation for today, as I already mentioned, is the megachurch mockumentary "Honk for Jesus." Save Your Soul, written and directed by Adama Ibo and adapted from short film of the same name. Film stars Sterling K. Brown and Regina Hall as the pastor Lee Curtis Childs and the first lady Trinity Childs. One of the Atlanta, 
of the Atlanta-based Southern Baptist megachurch wander to greater paths, which has recently fallen on hard times after Lee Curtis was accused by several young male congregants of sexual misconduct, leading to a severe backlash and a mass exodus of its nearly 20,000-plus members. The film picks up a year removed from that scandal, and the pastor and first lady are attempting a resurrection of, short, of sorts, hiring a documentary crew to chronicle their Easter Sunday reopening of Greater Paths. However, things will not be so smooth sailing as they contend with the opening of a now-expanded rival megachurch called Heaven's Hope, where many of Greater Paths' former congregants have migrated. In the way only the mockumentary format can, the film explores the vanity and hubris of the capitalistic leaders of the religious community, as well as themes like the exploitation of power dynamics, as well as competition among church leaders for congregants and, as they see it, money. Scott, did you think the mockumentary format worked for the exploration of these themes as they relate to religion, um, as well as the performances of Sterling K. Brown, Regina Hall, and the rest of the cast? Or did the film leave you feeling like it would need a lot more than some honking to save the film's soul? Yeah, Scott, I, you know, I was really curious about this movie. I have been for a little bit. Obviously, this um, premiered at Sundance um, way back at the start of the year. Um, this was actually one of the movies that played as a satellite screening um, at Aperture in Winston-Salem when I was still living there. Um, but I didn't go see it. I, I think I had something else going on. But uh, yeah, it's out now. It's out on in theaters and on Peacock. Um, of course, uh, where you can stream it. And I think it is kind of a, a streaming quality movie, probably for, for reasons we might get to in a minute. But I was curious about it, like I was saying, because um, I myself was raised Southern Baptist and still go to church. Um, and so I have some familiarity with the overall subject matter, because, of course, Lee Curtis is a Southern Baptist preacher in the movie. Um, Thankfully, I have not had an experience in a church that I've been to like with a pastor like the Curtis Childs or anything like that. But um, and have you have you been to a mega church before or is it just more I, local? I would say that the um, church that I am from back in Chattanooga, my home church is close to being a mega church at this point. Um, wow. Also, I did go to one in D.C. Um, over the summer when I lived there. Um, that David Platt, he's like a pretty big name uh, pastor. He's the pastor there. But anyway, um, so I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I am familiar with the uh, the environment, I guess. And sure. also I'm familiar with organizationally what has been going on in, within Southern Baptist Church overall, the Southern Baptist Convention, as it is known. Uh, there have been a lot, uh, there's been a lot of bloodletting recently uh, institutionally with um, things that have come out about um, behaviors that the the leadership were participating in, particularly covering up um, mistreatment of women that was going on um, in in churches in many Southern Baptist churches, and um, you know, try like I said, covering it up, brushing it under the rug, um, trying to protect the image of the church and the image of it of they're primarily male leadership and there's a lot of you know a lot more you can read about this if you're curious about it at all um and there's also a podcast um about this guy mark driscoll who was um, a pretty big figure in all of this um but anyway uh i was curious about uh it because i'm familiar with all that i follow all of that um 
And I wondered if the movie was going to get into similar topics. And it kind of does. And I think, well, I think the strongest part of the movie is when it does explore specifically, like I was talking about, sort of the mistreatment of women and the difficult positions that a lot of women are put in, um, in sort of the context of the power structures that are going on within um, the church and also the power structures that can go on within their marriage. Um, because um, we see a very particular view of marriage touted uh, at various times throughout the movie, whether that's, you know, that it's between a man and a woman, or there's a scene involving Regina Hall's mother later in the movie, which also kind of um, hints at sort of the biblical view of a marriage and how Regina Hall's character feels sort of trapped by that um, in the situation that she's in. But uh, so, so I think that stuff is really strong. And I think part of the reason that's really strong is, you know, the main reason it's really strong is the performances, I think, um, by Sterling K. Brown and especially Regina Hall are superb. Um, two, two of the best performances of the year for me. Um, I, I think um, they really carry the the movie through some of the thinner sections, I guess. And, and there are times when, again, the movie wants to be about other things. Um, you know, the money aspect is obviously pretty big and um, the narcissism that Lee Curtis has as a result of where he once was. And so now he believes what he can get back to in terms of his stature and notoriety. Um, you know, all of this stuff, it may sound like it's pretty straightforward and like, yeah, of course, you know, this all makes sense. And I think, you know, that may be where the movie loses some points is that it is taking aim at an easy target, right? And I don't know that it always, um, you know, is substantive enough to justify, you know, the fact that it is taking aim at an easy target. But like I said, I think the way it portrays that relationship between the two main characters and particularly the difficulty of Regina Hall's character in dealing with everything, um, you know, her husband's narcissism, the, you know, sexual misconduct scandal that he gets wrapped up in, all of it. Um, I think that stuff is pretty incisive. Um, obviously, it's not incisive just to say that this stuff happens and it's bad, but I think that the movie does go deeper than that, at least in that, on that particular thread. Um, and then, like I said, other times I think it flirts with other ideas, but doesn't really commit to them. Um, it does have humorous moments for sure. I mean, a lot of this is satirical. A lot of it is played for laughs. Um, and I think there are some times when it succeeds, though in the second half of the movie, it certainly gets more dramatic and serious. Um, and then, you know, you mentioned this as a mockumentary and the framing device um, of the movie, which is that, you know, these documentary filmmakers have in theory come to um, film Lee Curtis's rise back to and, and Trinity's rise back to, you know, the position that they weren't were in after the fallout that came from the scandal. Um, but the movie and when the movie, you know, commits to that, I think that it uses some really there. It, it, there's some really good moments there. I think Adama Ebo does have some vision and she knows how to use the camera at various times in the movie. I think there are um, some some clever ways that she frames particular scenes. There's one scene in a gym um, involving Sterling K. Brown and um, the sound engineer where there's some interesting stuff that she does visually. Um, 
but as far as the framing device, as far as the mockumentary, it doesn't always commit to it. And there are also scenes that take place outside the context of the documentary that is going on. And we don't really know why we're going outside the context of the documentary, except because we need to for the plot, because there, for example, there wouldn't be a sex scene in the documentary, but there needs to be in the movie, um, which is one example of a scene that we see that is why wouldn't the there be the sex scene in the documentary i mean come on it's an intimate <laughs> I mean, portrayal of their lives fly on the wall they mention it multiple times in the movie that this is a fly on the wall document documentary crew but they didn't it goes in and out yeah they, it goes in and out of the framing device without a whole lot of rhyme or reason like i said it seems more of like we're going to use this when it is useful for us and when it is not we're just going to abandon it and not yeah. really i also found why. the editing really tough in this movie to be honest really yeah. Um. Because of that, I mean, I'm not. Maybe it's because I'm watching it on a smaller screen. Because I did. I streamed this at home. I didn't go to the theater to see this. The, the the aspect ratio cutting. Yeah. On yeah, yeah, the yeah. smaller that, screen you, in you certain scenes in particular because they're flip they're flipping back and forth between the you know in camera document like mockumentary to the like, film four or three. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I found that like very jarring in some scenes that are supposed to be pretty dramatic. Um, there, yeah, there are a couple, there are a few scenes like that that I found it to be pretty disruptive to the flow of the film. Yeah, I, and I because I agree with you, and and like I said, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of rhyme or reason to it at times. Like <clears throat> when they're on the well, you can't the have that gym scene, for example, right? Like you, you can't even have the gym scene in camera. Yeah. But I'm not even talking about that. I, I mean, we're talking about like one of those the haunt when, when they're out like on the on the street. Yeah, honky. that's what I was about to say. Yeah. One of the scenes where they're on the side of the street, and you know, there's conversations happening between the two of them, and it's like cutting back. I was like, I don't really understand. Like I was sitting there trying to think about what the reasoning was as to yeah. why all of a sudden we're now back to you know traditional wide shot, um, yeah. as opposed to the documentary that we've been in, just in the middle of a scene um so you know maybe some like first time filmmaker stuff there um god we're gonna flag this episode with, with explicit with an explicit content label yeah, for, some, for saying first time filmmaker we're going down that route again yeah. but in in summation i did like the movie i would recommend the movie as a streaming watch uh, because I think the performances are so strong I do think it has something to say about a particular thread of how this stuff goes on in churches um and it's you know it's tight it, it's 98 minutes long um it's it, it it's solid for watching at home you know on peacock where you can watch it right now um, and scott's a scott's a company guy <laughs> for me today i think i don't even have to do this let's go yeah uh i mean look like i said it's a streaming it's a good streaming movie and it just happens yeah. to be streaming only in one place and that's on peacock but oh, yeah. um but yeah so so i would recommend it um, but, and I do think, you know, the filmmaker at times shows moments of promise, but on the whole, um, it definitely could have been stronger. And there are some choices made, uh, by the director that she's not really able to pull off. Yeah, I, I, I honestly, I really struggled on how to really feel about this film. Um, I watched it a couple nights ago now and my immediate reactions are one sort of echoing what you're saying about the performances. I mean, they are really, I mean, they really suck you. And you were talking about carrying you through the thin parts of the movie. 
I mean, I, I really feel like it's like it, it's hard to take your I mean, they really are the only two performers in the film. There are some minor roles that pop up in a couple scenes throughout the rest of the movie. But it really is Sterling K. Brown and Regina Hall. And I think they are really excellent in the film. I'd absolutely echo that. Um, not that I think the film would, would be anywhere like unwatchable or anything like that if it wasn't if they didn't have performances that strong. I just really feel like their performances were able to paper over some of the cracks of the film. I still wonder, though, even in spite of those good performances, I if the mockumentary format really works well for this kind of movie, I, I'm just I'm a little bit hung up on the satirical nature of some of the elements of the film. I think that you make a, you make good points around sometimes they're going after really easy targets. And I think mockumentaries are fine for that. I think it's fine to go after easy targets and mockumentaries. I think sort of ex exposing like the sort of greed and vanity of these church leaders is something that I find both believable in its lampooning, but also effective in the format. I struggle more with like this sexual misconduct element in this format because I was doing a little bit of research afterwards and I'm having a hard time finding any mega church that's had a scandal, a sexual misconduct scandal like this, at least that's been like in the news. Yeah. And I find it to be like pretty thin ice when you're using the mockumentary format to essentially lay out a scandal like this where like it's unclear if this has ever actually happened in like the leadership of a mega church. Now don't get me wrong like there's plenty of sexual misconduct stuff that happens in Christianity and established religion, but like that's just not not really how I felt like it was framed in this format and I was and I was sort of like talking myself through this the other day and it's like if the, the I think the idea of the mockumentary format at least in the how it's deployed in this movie is this idea of like inductive reasoning of like here's an example albeit fictionalized but an example of a mega church where we're going to outline sort of the flaws of, you know, mass organized religion in the form that happens in the, with a mega church and, you know, the greedy leadership, et cetera, et cetera. And then we're going to use that to inductively reason that like, this is a problem with churches that approach religion and um, mass community in the way that mega churches do. And I find it just like a little bit more difficult to wrestle with the fact that they have fictionalized sexual misconduct and sort of like portray this issue as like a mass organized religion issue, which it may be. I'm not saying it's not. I don't have an opinion about that. But like just doing a little bit of research made me feel like like I think if you watch this movie and you're not as familiar with these concepts and with these ideas, I think it's perfectly reasonable to think that this is like a mass issue in mega churches coming out of the film. And I think that's like a bit that that feels like it's a bit inaccurate from like some of the research yeah. that I just briefly did. And I feel like that that is one of the big hangups that I had with the movie and why this format, I think, is it it works in some respects. And I think it works well in some respects. And then in others, I just find it a little bit difficult. I'm not saying that filmmakers don't have license to make stuff up. But I think when you're specifically portraying a movie like this and, and engineering a film to lay out the issues with it with an institution i think that it, it's like it feels a little irresponsible to to be setting setting stuff up like that and it's something that i actually had a little bit of I've, i'm having more of a problem with the more i sort of sit with the movie um because i do feel like it ultimately 
like one of the cruxes of the film. Ultimately, it, it's not as big a deal in the first half, but in the second half, it becomes like maybe the central issue of the film is like the relationships that Sterling K. Brown's character had with these younger men. And I mean, there's the scene in the gym, which I think is one of the best, one of the most moving and effective scenes in the film mm -hmm. um, is related to that as well. And I just I wondered if it if it was like, OK, that the filmmakers kind of did that. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, not something I really thought about. Because, right, you could easily think, oh, this has gone on. But um, I do wonder, you know, you're mentioning some scenes. Yeah, they do confront it a little bit more in the second half. I do wonder, it does seem at times like the movie is a little bit timid about confronting the actual nature of the um, the scandal. Um, like, it, it, it doesn't fully ever, lay out exactly what happens. That is true. They, yeah. yeah, they barely ever use the word sexual misconduct or anything like that. It's... You, you really have to read between the lines a little bit. And so it's almost like, it, you know, it, it, like I said, it's a little timid. Maybe it wants you to believe the scandal is something different. Like it's, you know, it's something with money and stuff like that, which obviously has gone I mean, on. Yeah, I think it's all of those things. I think it's like grooming. Yeah. I think it's elements of grooming. And then yes, I think yes. I just think if, if you focus in on the gym scene, which I think is what you have to go on in terms of like what actually happened between Lee Curtis Childs and, you know, this sort of like group of young men who who is intimated are the people who sort of unearthed mm -hmm. the scandal um, of, of which book smarts uh, Austin Crute is is Khalil at the end at the end of the film. I don't know if you reckon I took me a moment to recognize him, but um, oh, yeah. it's Alan from Booksmart mm -hmm. at the end of the film. Um, but like it, it felt like there was elements of like promising things like grooming involved. And then there's definitely hints of sexual activity, I think in that scene or yeah. sexual um what's the right word like advances yeah no i mean it, it's again it's an interesting point i think again for me just the way in general it portrays what regina hall has to go through yeah is accurate to the experiences of many women sure yeah in, i'd agree with in that. southern baptist churches i imagine yeah but yes maybe the finer particulars of it the actual details of the scandal um are not as you know pointed as you know the the general ideas like i said and, and you know again it does seem like it wants to make a larger point like you know we see a brief clip at one point of lee curtis preaching against homosexuality basically which is uh, a very common mega church yes my, from yes. my understanding yeah and family values obviously there's hypocrisy there because yeah um you know he's like we said he's having the, the scandals are all with with other men um but it never goes any deeper than that with that actual threat um yeah. so yeah I, I definitely think it could have made a stronger point in, in some way about the actual sexual misconduct part of it instead of to your point maybe just preying on what less informed people would assume is is going on in these types of churches yeah and, and i think that the, all the stuff that you were saying a while back about how the power structures of these institutions affect women i think that's like such a more i mean frankly for me i think i find that to be such a more interesting thing to explore and, and really sort of like dig into and and sort of uproot because not that it's like a hidden secret of organized religion that women are often put into lower lower power structures than than men 
for the most part in those in those situations. But I think to like have a big film about that, I I, I mean, this is a big I mean, this is a big movie. It's Focus Features. It's it's a big release. It's Sundance film. Um, it was one of the most expensive films out of Sundance up there with Cha Cha Real Smooth, et cetera. Has a good cast. Has Daniel Kaluuya producing the film. It's got Jordan Peele's production company attached Much to it. Like yeah. this is a big. I mean, this is like for all intents and purposes a pretty big movie. I, I think it would have been really interesting to have the film dig more into that, um, and maybe even sideline. Like the scandal is the scandal, and it. Mm -hmm. I think it's trying. I think the film is trying really hard to add a lot of nuance to these characters. Um, maybe more effectively with with Trinity more so than Lee Curtis, but. I, I, I don't know how much of the detail of the scandal is necessary because just in this situation, I guess for me, I didn't find like the digging in of the details that rich or informative or. Yeah. Again, other than to yeah. just point out the general hypocrisy that, Oh, look at this. He preaches against homosexuality, but he's participating in it on the, on yeah. the side, which is not, you know, revelatory or, or anything. Sure. Um, and, you know, you mentioned too, that this is adapted from a short. Yeah. Maybe some of this, what you're talking about, is more the struggle of trying to adapt the short, which was probably about one very specific thing. Yeah, I hundred percent agree. Feature yeah. length film. I haven't seen the short. The short. I mean, that, mm -hmm. maybe that probably goes without saying because I don't really watch that many short films. But I would be curious. If, I think it's like 15, 20 minutes long. I'd be really curious if the actual details of any sort of allegations or sexual misconduct, etc., were were in that. It felt like even though the film is less than a hundred minutes before credits, like I, I did feel like the film might've been, like I can see how it got inflated. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. there were ways to make better use of some of the, some of the time I thought. Um, but that's, you know, that's not, that's neither here nor there. I do think the most interesting elements of the film, just, I guess maybe to get us back on track after the, uh, the dead end road, I, I drug us down on with that element um, is is I, I think the most interesting character is is Trinity. I think Regina Hall's performance is maybe a tick better than Sterling K. Brown's, and I find that character as the one who is like okay, they're both leads of the film, but it really feels like the weight of the film sort of like has to find its balance around her character, and I think she did a really great job bringing that sort of like clear frustration with the situation, but like realizing, maybe not even realizing, but just like accepting that like her only way out of the situation is to actually like fully embrace it, fully embrace it and sort of just like come to terms with, with it. And I mean, you, you mentioned earlier the conversation she has with her mother, the one scene that they have mm -hmm. as sort of like, both I think both really critical for her character, but also something that's really like really damning of the situation. Um, but I yeah, I mean, I found that scene really effective. Scott, what did you think of Regina Hall's performance as a whole? I mean, it sounds like you're pretty positive on both her and Sterling K. Brown, but Definitely. we'll have to dig more into into her. I mean, I mean, is it better than her Oscars performance? I guess is the question. <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh don't want to think about that whole debacle of, I mean, not that she was like a huge part of it, but no, you know, no. wasn't, wasn't a good part of it either. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, she's primarily known for her comedic work, of course, but um, in recent years um, has, you know, started doing more dramatic stuff. Support the girls is one that she got a lot of conversation 
um, for, and rightfully so. I think she's fantastic in that movie as well um, from a few years ago. Yeah. She's, you know, she's doing comedy and drama here, I think, very effectively, but especially the the dramatic stuff. She uses her face really well, and I think that's um, just one thing the movie does in general. And, and again, the documentary, this is one, I mean, that is one thing where I think the documentary helps it is, you know, they're, they are putting on a performance for the cameras in a way, um, yeah. in the same way that they are putting on a performance for the church members in their church um, mm -hmm. and are pretty explicit about the fact that they are performers. Um, and so I, I like that. And, and so there are, there are moments where Regina Hall's character, Trinity in particular, you know, has to mask her, her feelings Number one, because, you know, she's the woman in this relationship. But number two, because they're in front of the camera, right? They're, they are being watched by the documentarians. And so in that way, it requires uh, her to do a lot more nonverbal acting um, because, uh, you know, she, she, there are things she can't say when she's on camera. And I think she does all that really well of the clear frustration, as you mentioned, the desperation at times. Um, and then, it, yeah, ultimately she kind of comes to this realization that all she can really do is try to win these little battles within the context of their marriage, because mm -hmm. she's not going to be able to leave. Right. If she wants to keep everything that she has, um, which is not yeah. just like the wealth, but you know, again, her mother basically is like, calls her a fool for even thinking about leaving. Like yep. the only way she can maintain any sort of stability in her life is to remain married to him and if it's going to be as torturous as it clearly is for her she just has to win these little battles like i said for example at the very end when they're standing in front of the church um and he's trying to to touch her basically to put his hand on her or something and she's saying you're not going to do that um just trying to gain any sort of power that she can within that structure of a marriage, which again, I think is a salient point to make that a lot of women probably have to go through, like, even when their husbands, you know, cheat on them, do terrible things outside the marriage. Um, there is certainly a view of marriage and a view of a biblical form of marriage that is prominent among these types of churches that divorce is, is a sin, regardless of what the, the circumstances are. And um, that is definitely something that she she has to confront here. And so, yeah, I think she has a ton of charisma. Um, she's a very she's a complicated character because, you know, in some ways you want to decry her for staying in the, the this relationship and for sitting there when when her husband is going off about homosexual people and, you know, nodding along and saying yes and all that type of stuff. But once things start to reveal themselves a little bit more, you understand why she is the way that she is and why she she can't leave, really. Um, and that monologue that she has towards the end um, yeah. is, yeah, it, I mean, that, that's one of the best scenes, if not the best scene in the movie. It's pretty, pretty powerful the way that she sort of lays it all out there in front of him and in front of the cameras. Yeah, I was actually about to reference that scene as well, because I, I don't know if I have too much to add to some of the other stuff you said, but that final scene, I think when I was talking earlier about I, how I felt like the film was maybe more successful at painting a, a nuanced picture of Trinity more so than Lee Curtis, I think it's because of that final scene, because 
that monologue is super powerful, but it's also like not black and white in my mind. I find a lot like a lot of that monologue is like obviously her venting her great amount of frustration against like, well, one, the the whole idea of like people judging her for her choices and staying mm-hmm. with him or or, you know, the flip side of that, if she had done something different um, of Lee Curtis for just being like a terrible partner, but also like her pride in her own, um, you know, hubris almost of saying like, you know, she deserves this. Like she deserves the idea of like being a leader of this of this church as if she wasn't also in it for all of the status that's associated with it. I just right. find it to be super interesting and and probably part of the film that's most successful because there is obviously one view that's like, you know, this almost like fiendish type person who is all like pure evil, doesn't care about anyone, etc. I think that that Trinity does care about the community that her church built to some extent. But there are limitations to that. I mean, I think and those limitations are natural in a church where you have 20, whatever the number was, like 25, 26,000 people or whatever they said that they had attending their their service every week. Like you care about your community, but you're not you're not fostering maybe the kind of community that you immediately associate with, you know, smaller forms of organized religion where your pastor or your church leaders can like actually know most if not all of the individuals who are attending you know the service on a regular basis you know whether that's in christianity whether that's in judaism whether that's in any religion um islam etc so i i just i think it's i think the film does a really good job with her character um i'm not sure that the same uh, it applies to the same degree for lee curtis even though i think the performance is you know equally committed honestly from sterling k brown um you know, some of those some of those earlier scenes, although they're obviously played for laughs. Again, I think you mentioned it sort of at the outset, like some of those scenes where he's like walking through his closet of like Prada and Gucci mm-hmm. and um, whatever, like loafers and shirts and and jackets and stuff. And then the baptism scene, which also happens early on, like just I mean, genuinely funny scenes. Um but I also, I think, speaks to the depth of the character. Like, yes, there is a scene with Trinity with hats later on. She's like bought this $2,400 hat or whatever at, from the store. But I think there's a lot there's they give a lot more coverage to that character. And I'm not sure that they always do the same um, for Lee Curtis. I don't know if you would agree with that sort of summary of, of the situation. Yeah, because I mean, he's he's a less empathetic character, he's just a less complex character in general, right? I think we just understand pretty early on who he is and yeah. what his motivations are, which are wealth and status, but also he likes like power, he just likes yeah that yeah. he is the center of all this, and that people come they have to their the thrones at the top at the top of this pulpit, like it's he, pretty crazy. He, he just comes out and says it at the end when he thinks people are coming to the church. He's like, they're coming to see me. They're coming oh, to yeah, see that's... Lee Curtis Childs, Pastor Lee yeah. Curtis Childs. You know, he just he comes right out and says it. Um, that's that's all he cares about. So so by its by his nature, I think he's going to be a less. There's going to be less to explore there because there's less to the character. Um, but I think he's great. Like, I think, you know, his his like charisma is off the charts um he's funny you can totally believe him as like you know if you've seen these types of mega church pastors before like td jakes or joel osteen or somebody like that who um you know is of a similar 
similar motivations, it seems. Um, I think he, he, you know, he sells it perfectly. And whether it's the sermons or, you know, there's the one, the one scene where he just, he never comes off as authentic, really. Um, he, there's the one scene where he is trying to practice his sermon in front of her. Yeah. And yeah. he, you know, he, he has what he believes is a moment of like, oh, clarity, self-reflection. Yeah. yeah. And, but never acknowledges any sort of, again, wrongdoing or anything on his his part like yeah he deflects would it. really be required um yeah. and you know she calls him out on it um and i think you know he, he's great in that scene he's he's great in the movie um and he, he's great at portraying you know the fact that it obviously doesn't seem like he's really that attracted to his wife anymore but she is his number one supporter at least in theory right and Without her, there is not Pastor Lee Curtis Childs. There is not the church. Um, there is none of that. And so for that reason, he's desperate to preserve the relationship, even though it's, you know, in other ways stopped providing for him a long time ago. Yeah, I think the, the, his marriage provides him sort of, I mean, stability, right? Like the this yeah. notion of like, he's in this marriage. Maybe he appreciates what his wife does for their establishment in, in terms of, you know, the Greater Paths Church. Maybe he doesn't. But what he does know is that he can't he can't divorce her like he can he can do pretty much anything, but he can't divorce her like it. That's mm -hmm. not talked about explicitly in the film, but I think it's pretty clear as subtext of it um, from some of those scenes that, that you were talking about. Yeah, fully committed performance, just um, a bit more. I don't want to say clownish, but more bordering on that territory. Um, sort of a, a clown of a person at the end of the day when you really sort of strip back what few, if any, layers sort of exist on the surface to sort of mask that sort of just like raw selfishness that sort of exists within that character. I don't really know, Scott, if there's too much more. Like, like we could talk about some of these other themes that I had mentioned at the beginning, if not just to acknowledge them. This idea of vanity, which we talked about with going through the closets and the hat um you know purchasing that that type of stuff and I, I guess one element we haven't talked about which is less about vanity and more about the sort of competition that exists between these types of institutions and i think really speaks to the sort of you know zero sum game that that ultimately is these mass um you know mega churches these mass congregation mega churches is this idea that they are competing with this sort of neighbor this neighbor church, Heaven's Hope, that is expanding and trying to open their new, their newly built larger sort of church on the same day that they were planning on reopening their own their own church. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure the film goes into great depth with this sort of arc. I, I almost wish that it had done maybe a little bit more. There's clear jealousy and rivalry between them. Um, I think you see it on both ends, although you get a deeper look inside on the child side just because the mockumentary is following them versus um, the Sumters, I believe, are the other churches, um, mm -hmm. leaders' names, their co-pastors. But Scott, did you have any other thoughts about either A, some of the performances there, which I believe was Nicole Bahari, and is it Confidence? Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what did you think um, of, of these characters? Yeah, I, I thought they could have done more with it as well. I think the only real takeaway maybe is that 
this type of thing with the child's due is is cyclical in a way because they were members of the child's church before before they started happened. heaven's hope yeah um and we see them you know even though on the surface it may look slightly different right because his wife is actually considered to be a pastor alongside him yeah um, they're more progressive pastors yeah, yeah. um beneath the surface it's really still the same to you know they're still performing um and yeah. you know at the end they they switch their you know the the childs think that they're going to be able to get more people because they switch it they move up their opening date as opposed to easter which is when the sumters were going to open their new campus but then the sumters go ahead and move theirs up too and they try to act like oh we had no idea we had no know, idea yeah yeah this we would never would have done that if we had known but you know we know that they actually know and um the competition is there um so i think you know it speaks to like i said number one the that this thing is cyclical and that they're soon gonna you know grow in power just like the childs did and probably a fall will come with it uh, and also the needless competition between churches of of you know this type and size um just just the priorities are way off you know they're they really care about getting more people in the doors but not for the right reasons but it's because with more people comes more money yeah and it's not like these churches these churches these types of churches obviously have more programs they want to engage their community even more than maybe smaller institutions might want to setting up these types of things so it's not like they're not running bigger operations but most of the not to get into like too many like economic terms like most of like the incremental like profit or tithes or money that that one gets from the, like it's just going straight into these pastors first lady in the case of the Prada suits yeah yeah it's it's going into their pockets it's not going to enrich the membership or enrich the organization um it's not like a church that has 26,000 members versus you know a thousand members is has 26 times more operational expenses um that's not how these types of of things work it's it's just enriching them and it's it's a it is a cutthroat business decision to change their date um to match that of of the child's and they know that they're going to win if they do that um it's stifling out the competition and it's like you said sort of putting enriching enriching themselves further so it's an interesting it's a, it's certainly an interesting angle it's an angle that I liked, as I sort of already mentioned, and I, and I agree that I wish they had done more with that because I do think it's it's one thing to focus on one church and then another thing to show how the entire sort of, again, sort of zoom zoom out even bigger and show that it's the problem is not just one with one church; it is with the the idea and the sort of the institution of these large larger larger bodies. Um, yeah, I think that anything else that you want to add from the movie before we wrap things up. No, I think we we mostly covered, you know, covered it. It it does. It is a little thin at times. It does feel like a short extended out to a feature film, but signs of promise there. And uh, again, the, the performances are worth the price of admission, in my opinion. Agreed. Favorite scene or moment from Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. We've talked about some of the more dramatic scenes that work from a comedic perspective. I do really like the baptism scene and really everything around that with like the five people who are the one you know the only members that have stuck with them yeah and uh the little girl who's speaking in tongues and then says i love the theater um and her mom who is like 
you know, she doesn't love very many things. She loves paintball guns, real guns, uh, coming to church. Um, that was good. But then, yeah, the, the baptism scene, it's funny, but also there is like a slight tension to it because she is the one baptizing him. She's holding him under the water and it's like, well, you know, she could drown him right now and, um, and be rid of all of her problems, but not really. Um, so, uh, you know, the, it's it's a well done scene overall and just ridiculous. The excess, um, the amen, not the just of the, yeah, not yeah. just the clothes of the clothes yeah. and stuff like that, but their performances, the performance that they are putting on for, you know, the church members. Yeah, one of the funniest. I mean, there's so many aspects of that scene that are really funny, but I just find it. Because at first, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that it's clear that there, there is a baptism coming. And he just starts taking off his clothes. He takes off his shirt, yeah. While they're praying or whatever. And then and she opens he, her eyes and yeah. she's like, oh, like her again. <laughs> yeah. Her face is great in that scene. Yeah, that that was really funny. Yeah, that, that one definitely had me laughing. Yeah, that, that was a funny comedic scene. I think for me, in terms of drama, I mentioned it already. I think my favorite, I, again, I'm conflicted, but I think the most effective piece of filmmaking for me comes in that gem scene. Um you know, I already talked for, you know, 10 minutes already about why I'm conflicted about the whole underlying notion of that. But I think the craft, when you're talking about the craft of it, the the way that they utilize the camera in that scene and then how everything plays out, really strong piece of filmmaking um, for that specifically, you know, long shot. Yeah, specifically when he turns around after he's done this and you see his reaction like, oh, uh, shocked about something, but we don't know why. And then it slowly pans over and we see, see. like in the distance behind the window Pretty, that she yeah. was watching. We don't know for how long, but I thought that that was clever. Totally agree. Yeah, good stuff. All right, out of 10, what are you giving Honk for Jesus Save Your Soul? Seven. Uh, it's solid, but there are some missed opportunities for sure. 6.3 for me. Uh, I think we're in in similar of, of similar opinion about the you know, the hills and valleys that this, on, that this film goes through. And with that, that should do it for our discussion of Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we've got some very festival-centric news to discuss, as well as a bit of a somber note to end the episode on. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As mentioned before the break, Scott, festivals are happening. Right now, we have the Venice Film Festival, which is, I think, still going on for the next few days. You know, there's still movies premiering. For example, I saw that um, The Banshees of Inisher and I believe uh, Martin nice. McDonough's film premiered there today. And obviously, Don't Worry, Darling, as well. Yeah. And then um, I think Toronto starts next week. Tell You Right is happening this past weekend, Scott. So give us all the hottest takes out of the film festivals so far this fall? So some of the movies which are getting um, the best buzz, I would say, uh, Tar, which is Todd Field's first movie in 16 years. We've talked about this one before. It was yeah. um, in my most anticipated uh, somewhere in there. Um, sure. This is with Kate Blanchett as a fictional composer. Um, the movie's like two hours and 40 minutes long or something, but um, I, there have been a lot of raves for it. Um, 
I saw the LA Times gave it a really good review. I think David Ehrlich and David Sims both were really high on it. I think Sean Fennessy liked it. You know, some of the critics that I pay attention to um, that have been at these festivals, and I believe it's played, I know it played at Tell You Ride. I think it's been at Venice as well, but um, are, are really high on this film and on Kate Blanchett's performance. Maybe, uh, maybe we're going to see Kate Blanchett get a third Oscar, um, which would put her in some pretty um, hallowed territory if she's able able to do that. Um, but uh, yeah, she um, is is leading this film. I, I'm I'm very still very curious about it. I, I did watch Todd Field's second movie over the weekend, which uh, Little Children, which is a, oh, I don't that's know. a Todd Field movie. Yeah, I, not, I don't know why we people texting, don't. Yeah. Oh god, I don't know why people don't talk about how weird that movie is. Because goodness, it is craziness. Um, his first movie, though, in the bedroom, I really, really like. I think that's a really underrated film. But Little Children is is on on crazy pills. Um, but yeah, it seems <laughs> didn't like get, didn't that also get nominated though for like I don't know for it a, did yeah yeah I mean for screenplay got, right yeah Kate Winslet was I'm pretty sure was nominated. Jackie Earl Haley was definitely nominated. He plays the pedophile in the movie. Um, but it. It's something else. That's all I'll say. Um, but yeah, I'm excited for this one. And uh, I think it's going to be a big Oscar player. Probably it comes out pretty soon as well. I believe it comes out later this month, maybe or early next month um, everywhere. So um, Scott, uh, another October movie. 7th. I don't know if it'll be a limited release, though, at first. OK, um, it is Focus Features, the same people who uh, who are who are distributing. Don't Jesus honk for honk for Jesus. Save your soul. There we go. Yeah, um, a, a movie that um, also is getting a lot of good buzz, Scott, is After Sun, which is this A24 film um, from a director named Charlotte Wells. Um, it's uh, it's a romance film. It stars Paul Mescal, who, of course, we're fans of from Normal People and The Lost Daughter. Um, he uh, is, is starring alongside someone I don't know named... Uh, Francesca Corio, it looks like. Um, looks like maybe the characters played at different ages by different actresses. But um, but yeah, uh, this movie is not one that was super on my radar outside of the fact that it does have Paul Mescal in it. Um, but it's I've seen it got getting rave reviews. Like I'm pretty sure uh, David Early gave it a four and a half stars, which he gives pretty sparingly to movies. Um, yeah, a few people have seen it on my letterbox and have really, really liked it. So um, I know this is playing at New York Film Fest as well, Scott. If uh, if I am able to make it up there for that, then this is definitely one that I'm interested in checking out. Um, I think the Banshees is as well, I think. Yeah, I, mm, I think it is, but I think it was not maybe when I was looking at being there. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Banshees of Innis Sharon is another one, Scott. Again, it just premiered today, but I have seen some people really praising it. Um, this is Martin McDonough, who, you know, has made In Bruges and Three Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri most recently. Um, it's a film starring Colin Farrell um, that uh, has is up against the backdrop, I believe, of like uh, civil war in Ireland um, of some sort. Yeah. Um, or it, it has that at least as an undercurrent in the film. Uh, but it's Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, who, of course, also started in Bruges, both of them. Um, and a lot of people seem to to like this one. And obviously, um, 
you know, three billboards last time um, was a big Oscar contender, was, you know, very close to winning best picture, um, in fact. Uh, and so I would expect that this movie is probably going to contend for Oscars um, as well. Two other ones, Scott, which are, are getting praised. Uh, one that I'm really excited for, Women Talking, Sarah Polly's film, starring Frances McDormand, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley. Um, and I believe it's set in this sort of Mennonite community and, and deals with uh, sexual abuse. Um, it's apparently it's a tough sit, um, as you would probably expect. Um, but, you know, amazing performances, as you would also expect from, you know, the cast that I've named there. And Sarah Pauly, I've not seen any of her film or any of her films that she's directed. Um, but, you know, some of them are pretty highly praised. And I think a lot of people hold her in high regard as a filmmaker. And this is probably only going to help her stock. Stories We Tell, in particular, is a movie that I've um, been meaning to watch for a while. Um, and the other film, Scott, uh, is Luca Guadagnino's Bones and All. Um, this is with Timothy Chalamet and Taylor Russell. Um, and it's getting a lot of praise, you know, say, a lot of people saying it's a very romantic, you know, praising the leads, obviously. And I think in particular, Taylor Russell, who, um, you know, we've seen pop up in some stuff. Um, she was sure. obviously in Waves. Um, she is in the Escape Room movies, but maybe has been waiting for her, her breakthrough. Obviously, we know what Timothy Chalamet can do. He had his breakthrough with Luca Guadagnino some five years ago. Um, mm -hmm. We know he's one of the fun, you know most talented actors of his generation, uh, but maybe this will be a star-making moment for Taylor Russell. I know this one's showing in New York, Scott. I'm looking forward to see it. I think Luca Guadagnino is a, a strong filmmaker. He does different type of stuff. Obviously, you know he made Suspiria, which was um, real, really different from most of the other films he's made. But um, I think this this one seems to be more in the vein of. A Call Me By Your Name, A Bigger Splash, or like the series he did on HBO recently, We Are Who We Are. Um, yeah. How mad do you think Army watched. Hammer is that Luca Guadagnino is making a cannibal love story and <laughs> he got saddled with yeah. the normal, the, the normie romance? That is true. Yeah, there is the cannibal element. So it is almost, I, I and I think I even saw somebody make this point. Um, it might have been Esther Zuckerman that it's kind of blending the two sides of him as a filmmaker, the more like earnest romantic side that you see in something like Call Me By Your Name. And, you know, maybe the the taste for something a little more um, out there, quite literally taste but in, in the case of like, like a film like Suspiria has. So I'm looking forward to this one. Um, yeah, and it's then, called, they're categorizing a coming of age romantic horror road film. <laughs> this film's got a lot of things maybe. on there. Yeah. yeah. So those are the films that have been getting the most praise, Scott. Um, some movies that have been getting, been getting mixed or negative reviews. Um, I'd say in the mixed category, we have White Noise, which is, um, you know, my most anticipated film for the rest of the year. Noah Baumbach's adaptation of the novel by Don DeLillo, starring Adam Driver, Greta Gerwig. Um, people seem to be enjoying it, but um, feeling that it does not quite succeed in the seemingly Herculean task of adapting um, the Don DeLillo novel for the the big screen, um, which is probably understandable. Again, it, it does have a reputation from what I understand as being like a, a Dune type, you know, unadaptable thing. Um, it seems like maybe Baumbach does 
as good a job as can be done with it, but, um, you know, can't quite overcome some of the speed bumps there. But, I, you know, I'm sure I'm going to enjoy the film. I haven't read the novel, so that might actually benefit me more. Um, I don't know. But, it, you know, the reviews weren't quite as, you know, glowing as I would have hoped. But I'm still not concerned that I'm not going to like the film or anything like that. And obviously it comes out on Netflix. I think it was just um revealed recently that it comes out on netflix on uh december 26th i believe uh sounds right yeah you can watch um, it as a double feature with a uh, glass onion so yeah yeah the other film in the mixed category i would say scott is empire of light this is uh, sam mendez's um new film um i've seen people um you know who have praised the acting in the film which uh perhaps is not a surprise given that it stars um you know, Olivia Coleman, um, Colin Firth, um, you know, some some strong actors who are always in the Oscar race. Um, but perhaps it's the movie's a little flat. Um, it's set in England in the 80s. It's a love story, I believe, between Olivia Coleman and Colin Firth's characters. Um, maybe just not quite as dramatically interesting as some of the other stuff that is going on there. Um, so some of the other films that have been playing at the festivals, but, um, you know, I like Sam Mendez's films fine enough. Obviously I really loved his last movie. So, um, I Same. think I'm still looking forward to the movie again. This, the reviews haven't necessarily killed my vibe for it. Scott in the negative, you got Olivia channel. Coleman in your film. Y your reviews are going to have to do a lot to get me not excited for the movie. Yeah. Yeah. In the negative camp, Scott, a couple of movies. One is don't worry, darling. Um, some reviews have just begun dropping for this. I saw that both Sean Fennessy and David Ehrlich dropped one and a half stars on it. Oh. So, oh. Um, you know, it's perhaps not surprising that um, uh. this movie, given all the turmoil, didn't really pan out. But uh, yeah. I am I am sorry for Florence Pugh in particular, who um, was probably hoping to continue to springboard her career off of this and is not going to be for you know, for other reasons because of everything that went on behind the scenes, but also it seems that the quality of the film is also not there. Um, Ouch. But we'll be seeing this one this month. So, um, you know, maybe we'll be surprised, but I don't know. I've started having a lot more doubts, obviously, about the movie since the stories came out. Last movie, Scott, is Bardo, um, or whatever the long title um, is but this is Alejandro <laughs> Gonzalez in Yaritu's first yeah. film since The Revenant. Um, yeah, the movie is Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. Um, it's kind of, I think, a more personal film for him. I don't know if you want to call it his Belfast or Roma or whatever. You know, it kind of seems to be the the trendy thing to call these types of films nowadays. And I think Sam Mendes, for example, the empire of light as we, um, yeah, which we already talked about is also kind of a, you know, Belfast. Yeah. This is in Yara two's Roma and, and Mendes's empire of light is his. Belfast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Steven Spielberg's the Fablemans is coming out later as well. And that's kind of supposed to be his version of this, I think. So Perfect. a lot of filmmakers getting very self-reflective about their own experiences, but um, yeah, I think, Seems like a lot of people in, in the years since Inyarichi's last film are kind of done with his, his Man, BS. People, people really brought the knives out on him in the last yeah. few years, I feel like. And I don't understand why, but whatever. 
I know I'm in. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. so. So his number one hater is, of course, Adam Naiman. And I did see Adam Naiman had a tweet today where he said it frustrates me, specifically referencing Inyari too, that some of the most talented filmmakers make some of the worst movies, um, which is an interesting idea, um, I guess, to, to think about. But it doesn't seem like he thinks Inyari too is not skilled as a filmmaker, just that the stories and projects that he takes on are not good um and i can see how even though i like a film like birdman for example i can see how someone can look at it and say well the draw of this film is the aesthetic um the aesthetics of it right it's the you know emmanuel lubeski cinematography it's sure. um, all the one one take stuff that's going on although i think darius Kanji is the one who's, who did the cinematography for bardo not okay lubeski. Um, yeah well, right, but I'm using Birdman as an example. Sure, um, sure, yeah. Of, of a film like, um, again, that you could look at and say, well, I'm I'm captivated. I'm captivated by the film. I think most people would say that about most of Inyarritu's films. They're captivating watches. But what is it about the movies that is captivating you? Is it, you know, that they're nice to look at and they have strong performances? Or is it that they are dramatically interesting, have something to say, you know? have actual subtext to them again i like birdman i really like amoris paris which is his first film and you didn't but see the i think did you haven't seen the revenant yeah i um i think this is the conversation a lot of people are having uh around inyari 2 now and it seems like bardo falls into the more uh, is is maybe justifying some of the people who feel that um inyari 2 is kind of pretentious i guess i think that's a film a, a word i've seen thrown around a lot in reference to him and in reference to this movie i just yeah i mean i think that is so dumb but whatever <laughs> like i don't really have anything constructive to add like okay sure okay <laughs> where, where are the knives for wes anderson is all i'm gonna say D dude is such a pretentious filmmaker sure i mean yeah i have no uh, problem with that I, I, I love wes <laughs> pretentious without perhaps backing it up maybe is what i should have should have said is okay yeah i just like don't know how you watch birdman or the revenant and and be like wow this guy this guy knows how to make a movie like what whether you like what he has made is one thing but like well the guy can and i think that's that's, I know that's what Naiman, adam name say i know that's yeah what that's he's exactly what that's adam not what most people are saying about nyara too though i feel like no, I still think uh, Adam Naiman is a little ridiculous about uh, sure. his hate yeah. for Inyari. The fact that he's out here, like he had his profile picture on Twitter of in, as the picture of Inyari to holding his two Oscars for like a couple of weeks, just like as a joke, being sarcastic. It's a little unprofessional if you ask me, but that's a different conversation, I guess. Yeah, I mean, also like Adam Naiman is a writer who's employed by The Ringer. Like, yeah, not not a not a written medium, <laughs> The Ringer. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there you go, Scott. That's kind of the overview of the films that um, have been been showing, the stuff that's getting good buzz, the stuff that's a little bit in the middle, and the stuff that is not panning out in the case of Bardo yeah. and Don't Worry. Don't well, we haven't worry. talked about what's what people, the highlighted scene from Bardo, where like the opening scene is like a child being birthed and then requesting to be put back into the womb because the world is so evil. Like that's that's <laughs> that's so funny. Oh, my God yeah that's uh that's a little that if that's what the rest of the film is like this could definitely be a rough 
rough watch. <laughs> it's three hours long. It's 174 of minutes. Of course it is. <laughs> what the is. hell? I mean, so was The Revenant. It was it was very long as well. Okay, yeah, but, but The Revenant's not that kind of movie. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's a biopic. But yeah. Um, we're going to have long movies. It happens every year. We've kind of been... We've been blessed in a way almost this year. We haven't had, I feel like, a, a lot of super, super long stuff. But Our MCU like movies haven't been over like 120 minutes, really. Yeah. But it seems like it's coming again. Uh, Tar is like two hours and 40, 40 minutes. And then, yeah, Bardo is going to be long. Um, I think at least one of the other movies. Like, I think uh, White Noise is quite long as well. So Presumably. Um, yeah. The, I'm sure The Fablemans think, is absurdly long. Like, I don't know how yeah, long that yeah. movie is, but I'm sure it's long. Yeah. Anyway, these movies we expect them to be good though. So I I That's don't true. mind if they're long. It's the stuff like Eternals that doesn't need to be What if Glass movie. Onion clocks in at 180? <laughs> Are you in? I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> Ryan Johnson wouldn't do that to us. No way Ryan Johnson does that to us. His Star Wars movie yeah. might be three hours long, but there's no way that he's that he's clocking in knives out at <laughs> over 130 minutes. I would be surprised. Yeah, I'd definitely be surprised. But yeah, I think that'll do it, Scott. Cool. Well, uh, somewhat related to the whole notion of film festivals, um, a film that came out earlier this year at Cannes, I believe it's going to be showing at the New York, not believe, I know it is showing at the New York Film Festival. I'm not sure. Won the Palm Door. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I was about to get to that. I don't know if it's showing at other festivals. It did win the Palm Door at Cannes, a film called Triangle of Sadness. I actually saw the uh, the trailer for this movie. I didn't see the trailer for it. I saw the trailer for it before the dark night on Saturday when I was watching it at Alamo. Um, but just some, just some really horrible news last week um, uh, that is related to this film. It's, I, I don't really know if there's a quote unquote lead of this film. It looks like a big ensemble piece, but what someone who is considered to be one of the main performances in the film, um, Charles B. Dean, she's, if you've seen the poster of this film, or like an image for it. She's like the woman um, in a bait in like a swimsuit um, sort of lounging. And she died this past week. And I think she contracted some sort of illness and died very suddenly. Um, so nothing really to say about that other than people, of course, die every single year in, in the industry. You know, it seems like we've had someone very significant to the industry die every single year the past few years, you know, whether it be Chadwick Boseman or Sean Connery or you know, endless people that I'm forgetting. It doesn't normally happen when they are this young. I mean, yes, Chadwick Boseman, very young, but um, Charles B. Dean, I think, was 32 years old. 32, yeah. Yeah, so pretty pretty shocking to see that news come across. Have never seen her in a, in a film before, but... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's awful. It really is. And, I mean, you think about somebody who, you know, she's, again, she's 32. She's at still the start has of her, her whole career, career ahead of her really yeah and has just probably you know this was going to be a huge breakthrough for her like you mentioned you know there's there's four names for cast members on the poster yeah. um if you want to judge it by that hers is one of them of course and woody harrelson and harris dickinson and um, yeah. one other actress i believe but um but yeah so this was this could have been the start of something great um for her and like you know a yeah. career of of success and it could have been her renata ronsva performance from you know if you look at something like last year right things like that but um yeah unfortunately now it's going to be her swan song and um you know there there's there's nothing else to really say except it's yeah uh, yes obviously it does happen every year but um that doesn't make it any less awful that especially given her age and yeah. the point in her career like we're saying that um this has happened yeah and i guess we are ending the episode 
on that bit of a more, more than a bit that somber note but that should do it for episode 203 of some like it's scott uh where can people find you on social media uh, i'm at scarby dent on all social media platforms and i'm at shelton 2013 over there as well don't forget to also check out our podcast patreon at www.patreon.com slash pods you can support us over there we'd really appreciate that but if not that's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts, where we'd appreciate it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, all that so that we continue to reach a broader audience. And we really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. We'll be back next week with a review of what apparently might be this year's Malignant. That is the Zach Kreger horror film Barbarian. We hope you will join us in finding out what's at the bottom of those stairs next week. But until then... For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.